Good morning. Happy Mother's Day. What to say next? What do you say next? I've got a lot. Look at all these papers I have up here today. I, um, I'm not necessarily one to do a sermon about the great mothers of the Bible on Mother's Day. Um, and, and, and that leaves me wondering, well, what, what do you do? Because that's on the positive side. I mean, you know it's go- that's going to work. But you don't want to do a negative side on Mother's Day, Right? Because there's no negative side to motherhood. Huh? Yeah? Huh? You know, Mother's Day reminds us of the joys of motherhood and stories of nurturing and care and cookies and milk and flowers in the garden. But that's not the only motherhood experience. I'm thinking of the mother whose heart is broken for her children who are far from the Lord and maybe far from home. Late nights, sleeplessly in prayer. This is just as much a picture of motherhood as tiny hands holding apron strings. I, my life represents the fruit of the prayers of a faithful mom. Um, A woman with faith to move mountains who needed every bit of it. Her oldest son, at age 12, was hospitalized for for months with an infection inside the muscle of his heart. She traveled at miles every day into San Francisco to see her unconscious boy. Finally, the doctors told her not to come the next day because he was uh, not expected to live through the night, but to wait for a call. She prayed to a God who she knew offered no guarantee that her boy would survive. Children are lost. But she also knew there was no other who could help. Four years later, alone with her second son, homesick from school, but really lost in the despair of depression, he took an overdose of sleeping pills. Locked himself in the bathroom. And she broke him out of there and got him to the hospital and prayed that her actions hadn't been too late. And when he did survive, how do you go on? She she didn't feel equipped to guide her boy through the dark maze of his troubled soul. She prayed. Her youngest dropped out of school and life and family at 17 and disappeared, only surfacing after months and staying only for days 
then gone again, lost in drugs and alcohol and crime. She never knew if she had seen him for the last time. There was no one who could intervene, no way to help. In those lonely hours of the night, she prayed to the one who knew just where her boy was and just what he was doing. Hardly knowing what to ask, Lord, save my boy. For some, this is Mother's Day. This connects to our passage, which, I'm sorry, it's not, if you have a Mother's Day brunch, this could go a smidge long. We're taking a risk because we're going to look at the whole book of Habakkuk. Um, and it connects so well to this, um, I don't want to show of hands for everybody who's read Habakkuk. Um, if you've read through the Bible all the way through, well, you've read Habakkuk. But you might have just gone right through it. It's kind of, uh, it's like one of those Oregon books. You know, it's sort of just, you pass through on your way to California. And I'm not pretending to be an expert with the minor prophets. I ended up really becoming interested in Habakkuk a few years ago, studying Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, how does that go? Well, you see, there's a reference to Habakkuk 2.4. You're just about in the middle of this tiny little book that Paul uses at the start of his magnum opus of theology, the letter to the Roman church, where he says, the just shall live by faith. The mother I just described lived by faith. Not just because all other options were oftentimes removed, but she knew there was one to trust in. And here in the book of Habakkuk, we have what you could really argue that no Old Testament passage has a larger role in New Testament theology than Habakkuk 2.4, that the just shall live by faith. Our Christian justification, our right standing before God, our only hope of salvation is all wrapped up in those few words, the righteous shall live by faith. So um, Bible study tip, pro tip for you guys, um, and we learned this on our, on our Saturday morning Bible study. When you're reading in the New Testament and you see that that New Testament author has quoted an Old Testament passage, you need to go to that Old Testament passage and, and see what it says. Of course, we know we don't want to take verses just out of context and use them for our own purposes, right? So when we're studying in the New Testament, we're studying the context of the verses we're looking at. And then when we run into an Old Testament passage, we need to 
in a disciplined way, go back to the Old Testament passage and not just pull it out of context, but read the context that it's in. And at a very minimum, really, to understand the chapter before and the chapter after. Well, in Habakkuk 2.4, that's the whole book. So if you want to use your blue chair Bibles, uh, you'll find Habakkuk between Nahum and Zephaniah. Do you need something a little... Yeah, 785. Okay, page 785. A little more... Uh, a little more detailed. And as we begin to read, let's start with a little historical context. Habakkuk is terrified. This is the dawn of some of the most horrific events in Hebrew history. Up to this point, apart from the crucifixion of Christ, maybe the worst period ever. It was the beginning of the fall of Jerusalem. In the coming months and years, there would be an attack, a siege, starvation, disease, extreme human suffering in the city of Jerusalem. And Habakkuk's book begins, it, it's a prophet book, although it, it has other elements. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But it doesn't start with just saith, or the, thus saith the Lord, or the Lord spoke to me one day. To, no, it starts with what Habakkuk saw. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And, and to me that linked so quickly back to last week's sermon about Peter in the waves. He stepped out of a boat and walked across the Sea of Galilee. Amazing. And then he saw the waves. And what he saw and his faith became in conflict with one another. And what he saw won out and he began to sink. What Habakkuk saw has shaken his faith in God. And we will hear him cry out. The book begins with a dialogue, an argument, really, between he and God. And the kind of fear he is feeling can cause one to lash out in anger. What we find in the first four verses is fear Anger, accusation, all directed at God. God's people had slowly, over a generation after generation, had become indistinguishable from the Canaanites that God had driven out of the land when he put them in it. Literally indistinguishable. A recent archaeological dig near the city of Jerusalem, just a few miles away from the city of Jerusalem, was a complex for idol worship, false gods, human sacrifice, horrible idolatry, a complex that was 
basically the same size as the temple complex in Jerusalem. The people of the nation had for all intents and purposes and in the view of the eyes of God, become Canaanite. That's how they were, and and simply had the worship of Yahweh blended in. This was their condition. But from Habakkuk's perspective, God should come to the rescue of his people, especially since the Babylonians, who are now just sweeping across, no nation is standing up to them. They're just like a wildfire burning over the region. And Habakkuk sees them coming and is wondering, why, God, aren't you saving us? I'm going to read passages. I'll just let you know what they are because there'll be a lot of just text from the book. But Habakkuk's first complaint is, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Or cry violence and you won't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. He is claiming all of that. He's, that. he's speaking to God. You're idle. You're, you're actually, you're not doing your job. Of God, he says, you don't hear and you don't save. What's going on? Because he can see the smoke arising from the cities that the Chaldeans have taken, and they're just in the path. They're coming. God's response sets Habakkuk down pretty hard. Look, God says, among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. This is verses 5 through 11. For I am doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and to seize dwellings not of their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. A little farther down, they they all come for violence. All their faces are forward. They gather captives like sand. At at kings, they scoff. And at rulers, they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. The key phrase in there is God saying, oh, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The way this sounds in his ears is the way it would sound to us if we prayed for for peace in our world and the answer and and to be saved. 
And the answer from God is, oh, I'm raising up ISIS. Or if we're worried about the the shrinking church in America, and we are on our knees in prayer before the Lord, and the answer we receive is, oh, I'm raising up Scientology. Or for you in your own personal fear about our nation or our culture. or God says, I'm raising up that thing you're most afraid of. It would not be getting raised up if I wasn't allowing it or doing it. God sits Habakkuk down real hard. When Habakkuk cries out, Lord, do something, the Lord responds with, the Chaldeans are what I'm doing. And this is an important reality for all of us. Faith in the Lord means you trust him. The Chaldeans are coming as judgment and the fulfillment of promises that God gave his people before they ever stepped into the promised land. Obey me and be smothered with blessing. Reject me and I will take you out of the land. God keeps his promises. That is a great thing. I love that on a coffee mug, don't you? Do you know that also refers to his wrath, his promised wrath? When when God says, I promise you are accountable before me, God keeps his promises. If you are seeing scary, godless stuff, we need to know and remember that God is not deaf or sleeping or idle. Habakkuk revises his complaint in in verses 12 through 15. You Aren't you from everlasting, O Lord? O my God, O my Holy One. Lord, you have ordained as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors? And remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And he brings them all up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. And at the end of that section, is he to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Okay, this is the same argument, only with a little sugar on it. Right? He comes out, you know, oh, holy God, oh, uh, righteous one, what are you doing? Are you going to let a, a horrible, heathen, idolatrous, proud nation judge your people who are, we are so much more righteous than them? Did you hear that in there? Oh, my goodness. Would you? He's still confused. 
he makes a foolish common human error regarding righteousness and holiness. How can you punish your people with people who are not as righteous as us? Few ideas are as clueless as suggesting that you're more righteous than them. Not before a holy God, you're not. You know, if we go walking in the trees down at our level, you see little trees and enormous trees and middle-sized trees. If you fly over in a jet, they all look the same. Because the relative distance in height just doesn't matter from so far above. The relative difference in righteousness from one human to another before a holy and perfect God is hardly measurable. But we're walking around among the trees. And we we sense justice as a matter of comparison. And he cries out, how can you let injustice like this go on? These wicked people attacking your righteous people. Well, you can't, you can't establish or you can't sustain a claim that God is unjust. That's, that's a misunderstanding of where justice comes from and actually what justice is. You see, God is justice. Justice is one of his attributes. He is not subject to a standard of justice that is apart from him, right? That is separate from him. Justice only exists because God is just. There is something we know as justice because God, who is justice, made the world. And it reflects his character. So, what we call justice is reflecting God, not God meeting a standard of justice. And if that isn't enough, if that's not enough, these arguments and complaints, the prophet pouts. The first verse of chapter 2, I will take my stand, he tells the Lord at the watch post, and station myself on the tower and look out and see what he will say to me. And what answer concerning my complaint? Wow. I have sent an email to God. And I'm, gonna, I'm setting down my phone, and I'm just going to wait for the beep. He's got to answer me. He's got, boy, this guy has got a problem. And remember, the problem is, he's up in his watchtower, and he's seeing his own destruction and probably death He's afraid. That's his problem. He's afraid. He's looking at the waves. He's not looking at God. And the Lord responds to the pout. And, and his, his pouting actually ends what we would call like the lament portion of this book. That was actually like a lament. And now it's going to be prophecy. 
There's a prophecy section in the middle. And at the end, it's a psalm. It's a very interesting arrangement. It's a unique book in in all of Scripture. He tells his prophet to be a prophet. The Lord answered to me, write the vision and make it plain on tablets. This is verse uh, 2 of chapter 2. So that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It'll surely come. It will not delay. That is the assurance of our God. His plans will come to pass. Behold, speaking of the Chaldeans, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Now, this story of his soul is puffed up and it's not upright within him could also be directed at Habakkuk because he's not living by faith. You see, if you live by faith, you understand that God's going to keep his promises. And you look around and you objectively see the idolatry and the sin and the compromise in your own nation, in your own heart. And you realize God's going to keep his promises regarding that. And I need to trust him. So, at this point when he's talking about the woes that we're going to look at and the... And the uh, Um, wrath that God's going to pour out. And when he says, it's coming, wait for it, don't think it's going to delay, that means his justice. He's telling Habakkuk, look at your nation. Understand why I have to judge you according to the promises I made and trust me. And also, Habakkuk, make note of this. I'm not talking to the Chaldeans. They're not my people. I'm not giving this message to them, but the message stands. Their judgment will come as well. But here, when we read these woes, when we read that, um, that there's a coming judgment even though somebody is on top of the world today, they will, they, they will tumble and they will fall. But the righteous will live by faith. If we trust in Christ, we are righteous before God by his standards. We are not righteous by proclaiming the gospel. We proclaim the gospel because we believe the news is good. Because we have faith, we proclaim the gospel. We are not righteous because we do good works. We do good works because we believe there's a God who's watching and is worthy of our good works. 
We are not God's people because we live in a nation with a Christian heritage. We are God's people because we trust God, even if he takes our nation away. We are God's people. These woes he gives in the remainder of chapter 2. The first is woe to those who enlarge their wealth at others' expense. Eventually, you're going to be on the losing side. You're going to be spoiled for them. The second woe, woe to those who prosper through evil. You might build a fancy house, but the stones of that house will judge you. The beams will whisper to you of how you got there. Woe to the society built upon violence. It's a vain pursuit because ultimately the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord the way the waters cover the sea. Build your city. The glory of the Lord will wash right over it. Now all you do Ultimately, the day of the Lord will come. The fourth woe, woe to him who takes advantage of weaker nations. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. And finally, woe to him who trusts in false gods. Bringing a close to chapter 2. And he makes the foolishness apparent. You really, you think you carve a piece of wood and you stick some gold on it and then you bow down and pray? Do you see what you're doing? But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent. The Lord is God. He is not wood or stone. So wrapping this together, he has brought Habakkuk to the point of understanding that all the nations are as one before him. And the individual who trusts in God, trusts in the integrity of his promises, trusts in the mercy of his salvation, that is the one who stands right and upright before me. And in closing, Habakkuk sings a song, an emotional psalm. And the, the, the lead-in part of the song, he just... He just glories in God's sovereignty. None of these powers or nations or mountains or rivers, they all are just putty in your hands. You are above all things sovereign and glorified. And the second part of his song The prophet's heart 
is transformed. Do you remember the man who started at the beginning, arms folded, shouting at God, saying, you're idle, you're, you're unjust, and you don't save? Here's his heart at the end. I hear, Lord, what you've said, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. I don't know what that feeling is, but I don't want it. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet, I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Think of that thing or group or social construct that you fear is pressing in on the church or the kingdom of God in our world today. And then join with Habakkuk and say, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. And though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fails, and the fields yield no food. The flock is cut off from the fold, and there's no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take my joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like a deer's. He makes me to tread on high places. The Lord has lifted him up. Not by healing him and inspiring him, but by showing him what the prophet saw was the holiness and sovereignty of who God really is, not the God of his own making in his mind. But when he saw a holy God, he fell silent. His knees trembled. And he realized there is only one in whom to trust. And the Lord responds with Habakkuk, that's righteousness. Trusting me and not all these other things. And that is this pure core that I happen to see in that story I told about my mother, how many times she was brought to this place. And how easily it is for us to be brought to this place. And when we read Habakkuk's closing words, what a blessing it is to be brought to this place. Because to not be here is to be looking somewhere besides our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I thank you for such a, a, a abundance of truth in so small a package.
Lord, that this prophet has spoken and has taken us along with him from the confusion of fear to the high places with a firm footing before you. Lord, from the depths of despair to the solid rock of our salvation. Father, if we are afraid, I pray that you will turn our eyes toward you, that we will get that clear view that you are sovereign, you're not asleep, you're not idle, you do save, and your day is coming. Help us to be patient, peaceful, and righteous by faith before you. It is before you and in the name of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, that we can affirm this faith and our justification. Amen. Amen. Thanks for watching this video from Hillside Evangelical Free Church. Our hope is that these resources will help you grow as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. We're located in Greenbank, Washington on Whidbey Island. And if you live in the area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to have you join us. You can find out more information at our website at hillside-efc.com.